You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. And then our sermon notes are available through the Google Drive folder that you can access through your bulletin if you'd like to have access to our slide notes. Last week I told you we were talking through uh, John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11, a passage that uh, may or may not belong in the inspired Word of God, but uh, again, something that doesn't radically change our faith if it's added or subtracted, um, that the principles that are there can be found in other passages of Scripture too. And so last week as we talked through some of that, we really tried to lean heavily on other passages that reinforce uh, some of the ideas that we looked at last week. And uh, we said from a summary sentence standpoint, our zeal for God is seen through the way our life is changed in regards to sin, not in how well we see and judge sin in the lives of others, that the Pharisees were uh, appearing very zealous in that account because it looked uh, very zealous towards God's law to pinpoint the fact that this woman was guilty and the law needed to be applied to her. Um, But what we really see is, is zeal for God being shown through how we respond in our forgiveness towards sin, where, where Jesus tells her to go and to sin no more. And so we talked about not using God's law to promote our own agendas that we shouldn't use it to maliciously get back at somebody through its application. We see that in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1. We talked about not failing to apply God's law upon our own actions um, because it's there where Jesus says, yeah, we can apply the law to her, but we need to make sure we apply it to everybody that's here and not just to her. And that's when people start to to walk away. They don't want the law applied to their own actions. And so we said our zeal for God is validated when we're zealous for holiness in our own life and not just concerned about how it's being lived out in the lives of others. We talked about not missing opportunities to repent when you are convicted, that we shouldn't harden our hearts when God is clearly speaking to us. We see that in Hebrews chapter 3, and we obviously see that these people came under conviction because they recognized they were guilty of breaking God's law, but instead of crying out to God for mercy there, they just simply walk away and say, okay, we're all sinners, but but they seem to be okay with it as they walk away from that situation. And then we said, "Don't don't make the mistake of God's forgiveness being a license to continue in sin that some people uh, have hesitated even talking about this passage because it seems like she gets off scot-free and is allowed to commit adultery and then be forgiven and just go free, and it, it looks like she could then continue in this sin. But when we look at the passage, Jesus is very clear about her not continuing in that sin, but then we also talked about the fact that Jesus can clear her because he's God and because he plans to deal with that sin on the cross. And so application-wise, last week we said, how do we handle sin like Jesus? We address sin in the lives of others with a goal of rescuing and preserving them rather than condemning them, right? That the people who bring her to Jesus are not concerned at all about her. They're concerned about their own agenda of trying to get at Jesus. Um, When we seek to address sin in the lives of others, we do so out of a heart of love, a desire to restore them versus a desire to condemn them. And then how do we see our own sin like Jesus? Well, we rest in the freedom from condemnation that Jesus doesn't say, if she goes and sins no more, that he will forgive her, that he has forgiven her, that he does not condemn her, now go and sin no more, right? That it's not a conditional piece of, hey, as long as you do good moving forward, then I won't condemn you. It's, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more, which is at the heart of the gospel, right? That we aren't saved by our good works, we are saved for good works, correct? That, that Ephesians says we are destined for that, right? And so 
told you last week, kind of in closing, if Jesus is not going to stone us, then we have no business trying to stone ourselves either. That some people, and I told you, I'm not one of them. I'm one that, that needs to see my sin more clearly. Some of you see your sin very clearly and sometimes can become guilty of stoning yourselves repeatedly for things that Jesus does not condemn you for, that he has forgiven you. But in our spiritual pride, we want to punish ourselves almost for things that we've committed, and we need to be free from that type of condemnation, right? So we come to John chapter 8, verse 12, uh, where Jesus declares himself as the light of the world, and we're going to approach this passage a little bit differently than we normally do because of the length of it. Normally, we would walk through this verse by verse, word by word, and talk through what Jesus is saying here. What I want to do a little bit different today, again, break from the norm, is I want to look at this passage more in a summary format. We've already read it today. We're going to read it again, but at the end of the sermon, so we can kind of see how all this fits together. But what I want to treat this as is a conversation that Jesus has had with his Pharisees, or with not his Pharisees, but the Pharisees there present, He's had this conversation with the Pharisees, and I want us to, to pull out some key points from this conversation that I, I do think gives us a clear understanding of verse by verse, word by word. But I want us to see ultimately how this passage is ultimately the gospel in, in this conversation. It's packaged in this conversation, but it's the gospel that we cling to, right? So I want us to see the gospel in this passage a gospel that we are called to believe in for the very first time to become Christians, a gospel that we are called to believe in continually if we are believers in Jesus, that we cling to the truths that are contained in this passage, okay? So let's look at the summary sentence for today. Jesus comes as our saving light, bringing purpose, direction, and ultimate freedom to those who abide in obedience to his word, okay? So again, Everything that I want to say today flows from this sentence. This is what I believe is at the heart of what God has for us in his word today, that Jesus comes as our saving light. And thinking of him as a light, he brings purpose, direction, and freedom to those who abide in obedience to his word. For our kids, Jesus is like a light because he helps us see things better in this world through what he tells us in the Bible. Right, so Jesus brings clarity, his word brings clarity to this world, brings clarity to our own individual lives, gives us purpose and direction and freedom because he helps us see why we were created, right? Because what this world would have us to believe is that we were created to enjoy it, right? And so we act on our, on our desires, whether they are good for us or bad for us, we simply act on the desires that we have and enjoy this world for as long as we're here and that ultimately that's our purpose, right? Whereas the Christian biblical worldview says, no, we weren't created to enjoy this world, we were created to enjoy God and that this world is oftentimes a tool for how we do so. But that if we are enjoying this world in such a way that it doesn't leave it, lead us to enjoying God, then we've made the world into an idol, and we've made our desires and the acting on our desires as a means of worshiping ourselves. So Jesus comes as a light to illuminate how we've been operating in the darkness, right? If you've ever been in a setting where um, it's dark and you can't see, you, you act differently in it, right? Like, you, like you're, you're hesitant, you don't know how to move, you don't know how to act. I remember uh, in Atlanta, there was a, next to the bodies exhibit, there was the 
the exhibit where you could go and experience aspects of life as a blind person would, right? And so you'd have to sit in like a cafe and you had to order and, and, and you had to interact and walk around in like a grocery store and you had to figure out what am I holding? What am I buying here? Uh, it was a really uh, enlightening experience without, without the light. I mean, to, to not have light and to experience what it would be like to live life without light, right? Well, as, as unbelievers, as individuals who are born into sin, we, we go about this world not realizing that we are going about it in darkness, and that the things that we are doing are, are, are not ultimately what we were called to do, right? And so Jesus, as the light, comes in to rescue us from that state of mind, to rescue us from that state of darkness. So he brings correct purpose, correct direction, and ultimate freedom to those who abide in obedience to his word. And we're going to see that through um, several different uh, key points within this um, passage today, okay? So I've, I've titled each one of these points as gospel points because I want you to see that each one of these points flows from our understanding of what the gospel is, right? Gospel point number one is that Jesus is equal with God and perfect in every way, okay? So as, as we think through the gospel, we start with, with God and who God is, Right? And we, we understand some things about God in this passage. Ultimately, obviously, that, that Jesus is God, and we've been talking about that through the Gospel of John. That Jesus is very quick to align himself as part of the Trinity, that he is equal with God, his Father. Right? And Jesus continues to emphasize his perfection in this passage, that he is God, and to be God, he must be perfect. And so Jesus associates himself with perfection in this passage as well. As you're writing that down, I want you to understand that, that we need to see Jesus as our source for purpose and direction. In verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He illuminates us to understand our reason for existence, that we were made to know him, to enjoy him, and to live with him. And the reasons that we don't see that and understand that is due to our sin, that our sin prevents us from seeing our, our reason for existence. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78, this is prior to Jesus' birth as the angels are coming to announce both to John the Baptist family and to uh, Mary and Joseph. So it's in that context. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. They recognize that Jesus was coming to, to serve in this type of capacity, to, to bring us into a state of peace where we are at odds with God. We are at war with God. Jesus comes to, to bring light into our darkness so that we can have our feet guided into the way of peace. So we need to see him as our source for purpose and direction. He presents himself as God in this passage. Again, we, we've seen how the, the crowds and the animosity toward Jesus, towards Jesus has continued to mount. And that continues again in this chapter. In verse 58, we see Jesus' close connection with his father and how he draws attention to that. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is a passage that we've referenced before in, in, in other sermons um, that 
in the discussions of, of Abraham and, and his father and whose father do you have, who is my father, they, they continue to, to get inquisitive with him about his identity. And so they challenge him about how in the world he could have even seen Abraham. How does he even know Abraham? How can he even talk like he's interacted with Abraham? And Jesus goes for the throat here, like the, the convicting throat right here, when, when, he, when he identifies himself in such a way that it's completely unmistakable who he is claiming to be, right? And so some critics out there would say, Jesus, good teacher, good person, never meant for people to understand himself as God, right? Passages like this debunk that type of thinking because he's very clear here in the words that he uses. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, right? Like it's an English teacher's nightmare, the grammar that's used here. It doesn't make sense, right? Uh, and, and Jesus could have easily said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was, right? Like it would have been a nod to his eternity to say, hey, I existed before Abraham. But instead, he uses language that connects him with Yahweh of the Old Testament, connects him with how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as the I am is who has sent you to deliver Israel from Egypt, right? We know that it resonates with them based on verse 40. 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, right? They are, they are wrecked by this statement, right? Their immediate reaction is to take up, take up stones and throw it at him because they know what he is identifying himself as. He is claiming to be God. It was blasphemy for them, right? And it's only blasphemy if you're not God, right? It's blasphemy to claim to be God unless you are God, then it's no longer blasphemy, right? So they are making a declaration. We have rejected your teaching. We have rejected who you claim to be. You are not God according to our uh, calculations, and therefore we must kill you. He presents himself as God. He presents himself in unity with the Father. So there's that, that triune essence to who God is with both the Father and the Son being mentioned in this passage. And Jesus talks about the unity that he possesses with his Father in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one yet. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Right, he's talking about the, the unity that he possesses with his Father. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He's presenting himself as equal with God. He's, he is God. He's in unity with the Father. But then lastly here, he sets the standard for righteousness by what he does and by what he avoids, right? So he's equal with God. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's perfect. It means that he's perfect. And he's not just the type who avoids sin, right? Like some of us are great at the avoidance piece of sin. Right? Like there's, there's a lot of things that we don't do that maybe other believers are involved in. Certainly the lost world is involved in. And Jesus has that element of his perfection, that he avoids sin. But he's also on the other side of uh, what it means to be obedient to God, and that's that he is always involved in the right things. Right, So he's not, uh, he's not like a, 
a monk who maybe removes himself from the world, removes himself from the world and removes himself from temptation and, and tries to isolate himself to where he can't do sinful things. He's very proactive in being involved in the right things, right? So he sets a standard for righteousness by what he does and by what he avoids. In verse 29, we see the proactive piece. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's always proactively following through in obedience. But then there's also that avoidance piece where he can't be accused of sinful activity in verse 46. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus, in this conversation here with the Pharisees, he is presenting himself equal with God, unified with God, and perfect just like God, right? Perfect in the sense that he is proactive in doing the right things. Perfect in the sense that he is avoiding all of the wrong things. He is perfect in his righteousness. And he presents himself in this way here. Gospel point number two that we see in this section. Without Jesus, we exist in a state of darkness. For our kids, without Jesus, we are lost. And nobody's exempt from this because nobody's perfect like Jesus. So Jesus comes as the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Without Jesus, we exist in a state of darkness. And the Pharisees are the, the prototypical example of this. First, they remain in darkness because of technicalities, right? And we've seen this before, how they are so quick to, to talk about the, the minor details and to really harp on the things that their faith just can't get over versus seeing what's really before them, right? We said that when he heals the paralytic man by the pool, what's their first reaction? What day is it? right? Like not, there's a man walking around that for years has not been able to walk and we haven't been able to do anything to fix him. It's what day is it? Because if it's, if it's Saturday, like this is completely unacceptable, right? What they should have done is step back and said, how in the world is this guy walking around, right? Like what does this mean for us, right? And that's where Jesus steps in and says, look, you're circumcising on the Sabbath so that somebody's not guilty of breaking the law. Uh, and you would call that a good work, right? And so he's like, how can, you, how can you criticize me for what I'm doing on the Sabbath, right? But they're very quick to like hit on the technicalities. And so they do that again here when Jesus makes this statement. They wanna get wrapped up in, do we have enough witnesses here to validate what you are saying? And what's unfortunate here is that their minds aren't thinking properly because the law did require, right? The, the two to three witness piece to make the, testimony admittable in court. And if you didn't have it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the testimony is false. It just means we can't use it. But that's not what their reaction here is to this passage, right? It's, hey, you're bearing witness about this yourself, and we don't see any other witnesses. Verse 13, therefore, your testimony is not true, right? Like, like they are rejecting Jesus's teaching because for them, there's not enough witness to it. 
But instead of just saying, hey, we're gonna need some more witnesses or we're gonna need to think about this a little bit more because it could or could not be true, we're not sure yet. They declare it not true because there's not enough witness to it. They remain in their darkness ultimately for technicalities, right? And this is where I've challenged you in your presentations of the gospel to other people, that the enemy would love the lost to get wrapped up and caught up on minor technicalities and details within scripture, right? Like the scientific mind that can't wrap his mind around how God could create everything in six days based on what they've studied in science, right? Um, Wanting to get wrapped up in in what they would say are... um, um, continuity issues within scripture based off of the original text, right? What, what, they, what they won't stop and ponder and what the enemy would freak out about if they stopped and pondered is, where's Jesus's body, right? Like, who is Jesus and what happened to his body? Because ultimately, ultimately, that's the crux of our, of our faith, Right? Now, are all those other things that I just mentioned important? Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely need to search scripture and understand scripture to understand the origins of the universe and, and how God created everything. And some of those things we may not ever fully understand, but the, the, the clarity within scripture, the piece that we really have to wrestle with and make it a determination about is who's Jesus, what happened to his body, right? And so they're wanting to get, to get wrapped up on these minor details And they're saying, okay, we're just going to denounce you completely because of the fact that we don't have enough witnesses here. They remain in that state of darkness because of technicalities. Number two, they remain in darkness because they make no room for his word, right? Jesus addresses the fact that in all of his teaching, why are they rejecting it? Why are they not listening to him? Because they do not make room for his word. And then number three, they remain in darkness because they hate his word says they could not bear it. They refused to respond in conviction to it. Jesus is faithfully teaching them and they are faithfully rejecting his teaching. They do not make room for his word. Uh, verse 43 says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus is essentially saying, you know it's true. You just don't like it. You know I'm attacking your personal righteousness and you just don't like it. They're not making room for the word. They're not allowing the word to take root in their life. They're rejecting it instead. Jesus, equal with God, perfect in every way. Second point he makes is that without him, we exist in a state of darkness. Number three. Oh, oh I had these for you. Actually, these are the points for under number three. We'll come back to them. Gospel point number three. Due to sin, we are destined to eternal judgment and separation. Due to sin, we are destined to eternal judgment and separation. For our kids, our sin means we deserve punishment. Due to sin, we are destined to eternal judgment and separation. Jesus begins to talk about this to them in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. He says in verse 23, you are from above or from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Point number one here, separation is coming between the above and the below. It's coming between the above and the below. Jesus associates associates himself with the above. 
and he calls the Pharisees a part of the below, part of this world. And Jesus says, I'm a part of um, the heavenly realm, right? Well, where does that leave us as believers? Where, where do we get grouped into this? In John chapter 17, verse 16, a passage we'll get to, he's praying for his disciples, praying to his heavenly father prior to his crucifixion a prayer that we call the high priestly prayer. And in verse um, 16, we'll actually start in verse 13. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, right? So, so the good news for us as believers is that we fall into the category that Jesus is describing for himself here, that when the separation comes from the above and the below, that we are part of the above as his followers, that we get grouped into the group that's not part of this world, that is instead part of God's realm. And so Jesus warns and says that this separation is coming. We need to be prepared for it. We need to be ready for it. Well, how do, we, how, do we get, how do we get to the right side? Our slavery prevents us from helping ourselves, right? This is gospel 101 that, that Jesus is perfect. We are not, and we can't do anything to make ourselves perfect. We can't fix ourselves. Our slavery prevents us from being able to correct the wrong that we're involved in. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, right? We are mastered by sin and we cannot free ourselves. Our slavery prevents us from helping ourselves. Number three, our personal righteousness cannot spare us. Our personal righteousness cannot spare us. The Pharisees assumed that uh, Jesus was less righteous than themselves. Look at how this conversation plays out. He says, verse 21, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where am I going? You cannot come. Look at Look at how the Jews take this statement and how they pervert it and twist it. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews believed that to commit suicide pretty much automatically separated you from God forever, that that you were destined for hell through suicide. So they connect the fact that what we're talking about is the afterlife. Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't go. And in their self-pride and righteousness, they said, oh, you must be going to hell because that's where we will never be, right? They look at the Holy One of God, perfect in righteousness, and they say, oh, if we're gonna be separated from eternity, you're the one going to the bad place, not us. They are so ingrained in their self-righteousness, so blinded to the light that they desperately need that when Jesus starts talking about separation, they look at him and say, you're going to be the one who's on the wrong side of the fence, right? They're completely consumed with what they perceive to be perfection on their end. Number four, our spiritual heritage cannot spare us. And I had verse 33 written right there. It's actually for point number four. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The Pharisees assume their spiritual heritage contributes to their holiness, Right? Like that, like they're 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 deceived into thinking that because they're an Israelite, because they're a Jew, because they come from Abraham, that 
that they are automatically grafted into God's people, that they are automatically okay in God's eyes. And they use the aspect of being Abraham as their father as their, their, their hope, basically, right? Like, we are okay because Abraham is our father. It reveals where their hope is actually being placed. It's being placed in a faulty source. Jesus combats that thinking for them, says, you think you're a son of Abraham. You think you're part of Abraham's family, but you're not. Jesus answered them in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Verse 37, I know you're an offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Like, hey, we just told you who our father is. And Jesus is like, I know who you say you're from, but you're acting more like a different, like you come from a different father. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father father did. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was murderous from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Right? So he's he's, he's correcting their thinking. Hey, you think you're okay because of your spiritual heritage, and you're actually not okay because of your spiritual heritage, right? Like, what he's trying to help them see is that that you weren't born saved because you were born from Abraham. You're born sinful because you come from from Adam, right? Like, you're, you're ultimately sourced in acting like your father, the devil, Right? Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden where man fell, the offspring of Adam tainted by sin. Not excused if you come from Abraham, always tainted by sin. And our sinful flesh lives out what's very characteristic of Satan, right? Through, through murder and lying, deceit. Our slavery to sin prevents us from helping ourselves. Personal righteousness can't spare us. Spiritual heritage cannot spare us. Gospel point number four. Believing in Jesus is our only way of escape. Belief in Jesus saves us for our kids. Believing in Jesus is our only way of escape. He tells them this in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's our only way of escape. And he brings freedom from that death, brings freedom from our sin, through his word. That's where ultimate freedom comes from. In verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now the world would have us believe that freedom exists outside of the parameters of God's word, right? That to step into God's word is to now bind yourself to a strict way of living. To be outside of the the word is where true liberty exists, where true freedom exists, right? I love what this one commentator said. He said, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought begins to please us. Let me say that again. True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please but the liberty to do what we ought. 
And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought begins to please us. The deception of the enemy, the deception of this world, the deception of sin is that if we don't follow God, we get to do whatever we want, right? But we've seen this several times in the Gospel of John. It's worth mentioning again here that sinful freedom does not get to do whatever it wants, according to John chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You know what sinful people want to do in this passage? That's arrest him and kill him. And they are not free to do what they want to do because his hour had not yet come, right? So true liberty, true freedom is found in submission to Jesus where we are doing the things that we were created to do. And through that transformation in his word, the things that we are created to do become the very things that we want to do now. Right As we become a new creation, it's the sinful things that are passing away, the desires to do sinful things that are passing away, and it's the desire for the things that we were created to be, to enjoy God and to serve him, that become our true heart's desire. Believing in Jesus is our only way of escape. And we, we believe in him by believing the truth that is being presented to us. In verse 25 it says, So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, right? What they are failing to do is believe the truth that is continually being presented to them. What we, are, what we have a responsibility to do is that is to believe truth as it is presented to us, to believe the truth. I told you all along in our study of John, John is not a gospel strictly for the unbeliever, We know his purpose is listed at the end of the Gospel of John. Why have I written this? So that you might believe, right? But we've talked about the fact that we believe and then we have to keep on believing. So as we continue to work through the Gospel of John, those of us that are believers, we have a responsibility to believe this truth over and over. Keep believing, keep believing, keep believing, right? Jesus isn't presenting really anything new here in chapter eight that we haven't seen already in the first seven chapters. He says, I've been saying this from the beginning, who I am, and what your responsibility is to me. We need to believe truth as we are hearing it. So we've seen Jesus is equal with God, perfect in every way. Without Jesus, we exist in a state of darkness. Due to sin, we are destined to eternal judgment and separation. Believing in Jesus is our only way of escape. And when we believe in Jesus truly, number five, our ongoing response to the Bible reveals the the genuineness of our salvation. For our kids, if we are a Christian, we should obey God by doing what the Bible says. Our ongoing response to the Bible reveals the genuineness of our salvation. He says, if you're truly my disciple, you will abide in my word. You'll experience freedom, and it will become a pattern in your life moving forward. Down towards the end of this passage, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Right? We get to escape permanent death by being saved, by believing in Jesus. How do we know that we're saved? How do we know that we believe in Jesus? And the things that become true about us are keeping his word. Right? The, the pattern that we see with the, the adulterous woman, right? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Not, if you go and sin no more, I won't condemn you. Our ongoing response to the Bible reveals the genuineness of 
our salvation. Time in the word is our active effort to abide in him. Time in the word is our active effort to abide in him, right? Jesus talks about the need to abide in his word if we are truly his disciples in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Had you discussed in your discussion group this morning, what does it mean to abide in God's word? Well, it starts with us committing time to be there. It starts with us committing time to be there. That's our active effort to put ourselves in compliance with what Jesus is talking about here. To abide in his word means that we set aside time to be in it, to dwell on it. Colossians chapter three, verse 16, helps us to see um, this. Colossians chapter three, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Man, one of the outflowing pieces of being in God's word is that it equips us to better minister to other people in our life, right? But it talks about us letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. How do we do that? We, we, we set aside time to be in God's word so that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And there's nothing worse than being in the presence of somebody who knows just enough about God's word to misuse it, right? Like, like they, they, they know passages to go to, to try to back up certain things that they're doing, but they haven't really abided in God's word and let it dwell in them richly because they're mishandling it. Right? Paul talks to Timothy here about, about being in God's word in such a way that you can rightly handle the word of truth. We have a responsibility to spend time in God's word, to let it dwell in us richly so that we can rightly handle it, so that we can rightly respond to it. We grow in our understanding and worship of him through his word. It's how he reveals himself to us. It's how we get to know God better. With the goal being to allow every area of our life to be brought under control by his word. And when we find things in it that we don't like, we ask him to change us versus trying to change it, right? A high view of scripture leads us to approach it in such a way that when we come across passages that immediately that, that old flesh doesn't like, that our response is to ask to be changed. Hey, this is an area where I'm still being changed, right? He started the good work. He hasn't quite finished that good work in me, but here's an area where he can keep working instead of us trying to change God's word when we don't like what we encounter, when we don't like what we see in that mirror that James talks about. Time in the word is our active effort to abide in him. Number two, obeying his word is our active effort to persevere. Obeying the word allows us to enjoy this life properly. We follow him out of darkness into light. So Jesus isn't just calling us to, to read the Bible every day or to spend time in his word throughout the week. There's a call to do something with it, right? It's whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Not just abiding in it by reading it, but by seeking to obey it, to do what it says. And then number three, failure to persevere in God's word shows that we are not true disciples. Our obedience or lack thereof is a strong indicator about our salvation. And our faith should not be shaken when we see practical examples of people who have called themselves believers 
who wander from the faith, who disconnect from God's word and no longer follow him. Then in fact, we should expect it. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We should expect that there will be people who do not endure sound teaching, who don't want to hear what God's word has to say, but verse 4 will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We should expect it. We should expect to see apostasy around us. We should expect to see people abusing God's word around us. We've, we've, we've seen that recently in, in you know, me making you aware of the, the things with Joshua Harris because I've used his material, right? It's necessary for me to tell you that, that he's, he's renounced his faith. I think recently too, and I, I've, I've, I don't really follow the music scene, but I think one of Hillsong's uh, main writers has kind of come out and denounced this too. I loved, uh, actually, I'm gonna say this for just a second. Um, I wanna read something to you, but let me, let me give you this, uh, some salvation tests I think that we can see from this passage. And again, we're about to read the whole thing so we can kind of see how all of this fits together in the, the narrative format. But do we have a love for Jesus? Do we hear God's word and seek to understand and obey it? Do we desire to do his will? These are things that he is presenting to the Pharisees as reasons for them to identify the fact that they're still in darkness, that they don't love him, they aren't hearing his word, they don't seek to understand it and obey it, that they don't desire to do his will, they desire to do the will of their father, right? Seeing some of these same things not in question format, genuine disciples hold to the word. Genuine disciples discover truths from the word. Genuine disciples find freedom in life through those truths, right? So there's three pieces there to being in God's word. You've got people who, who hold to the word. They spend time in God's word. They, they study it, discover truths from it, find the application to it, find ways to obey it, and then they actually experience the freedom as promised through those truths, right? Like it, it has real effect in their life. Do we have a love for Jesus? Do we hear God's word and seek to understand and obey it? Do we desire to do his will? Tim Challies wrote an article recently um, dealing with uh, the Joshua Harris situation, the guy from Hillsong. One of the points that he makes, I wanted to, actually I want to make, I want to read two of the points that he makes. Um, he says in his article that trajectories matter. It's, a, it's rare that people apostatize all of a sudden. Rather, there will almost always have been a long trajectory away from genuine Christian faith and practice and toward distinctly unchristian faith and practice. I expect those who knew these men, talking about Joshua Harris and the guy from Hillsong well, those who saw their lives up close could tell of a slow drift rather than a sudden deconversion. We are all people of trajectories who wittingly or unwittingly, deliberately or carelessly point ourselves along the narrow way that leads to salvation or the broad way that leads to destruction. This demonstrates the importance of having people in our lives who will confront and redirect us, not just when we've gone past the point of no return, but at the point we begin to go astray, even by small degrees. This also demonstrates the importance of having a vital relationship with God and a sensitivity to his spirit as he examines, confronts, and assures us. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Right? What's he saying there? He's saying, we don't wake up and decide not to be a Christian one day. That, that things take place in our life where we drift from God's word. We stop abiding in his word. We stop yielding to his word. 
to the point where we eventually get to the point where we say, I'm done with that. I'm going to now live in this new conceived aspect of freedom. That's me doing what the things that I want to do. But he says that doesn't happen overnight. That, that's something that, that takes place over a course of time. And what he's calling us to, what he's reminding us here, is that we have to be in a setting where people can help identify that in our life, right? So people who believe that they can follow Jesus effectively outside of the local church, they're setting themselves up for a very dangerous experience, right? They're banking everything on them staying true to Jesus without any type of outside encouragement. Man, the culture that we want here at Sovereign Hope is such that when you come and you join our church, that we are partnering with you in your faith to keep you growing, to keep you persevering, to keep you experiencing sanctification. And when you start to drift potentially, that somebody is there very quickly to identify that and to push you back towards Jesus, right? And so we've, we've talked recently about some of the restructure that we're looking at, and that's to create more organic opportunities for accountability and more specific structured opportunities for discipleship, right? So we want these, we want these discipleship groups that we've talked about doing on Wednesday nights to, in some ways, replace our accountability groups in that we are wanting to do more in those groups on Wednesday night than just have accountability, right? We want to hold each other accountable to being in God's word, to reading it, studying it, and applying it, and doing that together. Doing that together. Because here's the thing, we recognize some of you don't know how to do that. And that's no fault of yours, right? Like you're not born into this world knowing how to study God's word and how to to read it and how to understand it. And it only becomes even possible once the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And some of you got saved and never got really equipped to know how to do that. And what we envision with our our Wednesday night groups is being able to call our people together to surround people around the Word of God, to study that together, to help teach each other how to do it when one doesn't know how to, right? And for you who maybe say, it's not that I don't know how to, it's just that I don't have a strong desire to. Man, our hope is that we put you around people who do have a strong desire to, and that starts to become... um, uh, something that, that's reciprocated in your heart, right? That it begins to, to wear off on you as you put yourself around people who are passionate about studying God's word. Tim Challey says this uh, to kind of wrap up his article. He says, apostasy accomplishes good in the church. Even though apostasy is terrible, God uses it to accomplish good. He, after all, is the God who promises that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. If this is true on a personal level, surely it's equally true on a corporate level. The revelation that some have abandoned the faith warns the rest to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Even while we grieve the church's loss, we ought to rejoice that God will be at work to bring about his great and glorious purposes. Man, we've talked about the Joshua Harris situation exactly like that. That it ought to be a warning to us that if you can be a pastor and a teacher in a, in a church and still reach a point where you wander and, and, and reject the faith, how much more does it mean that we absolutely have to be abiding in his word? 
that we have to be yielding to it, not just reading it, but seeking to understand it, seeking to live it out in our own life. Jesus says, that's what a true disciple looks like, right? And I told you, either Joshua Harris is a true disciple, and this is a period of time where he will confess and repent and come back to Jesus, or it's a clear indicator that he never was a believer. He never was a disciple, right? Because Jesus says, a true disciple endures. A true disciple keeps abiding in me and experiences true freedom. From an application standpoint for you, because we talked in our discussion groups about the legalistic piece, and here's where, where I'm very careful to not tell you exactly what it means to abide in God's word, right? That, that it could be very easy to create a man system of you have to spend time in God's word this amount of time each day or this amount of time throughout the week, right? What I want you to carefully step back and say, is what does it mean for me to abide in God's word according to what I'm reading in this passage, right? If, if I understand what's at stake here, right, that, that, that I have to be abiding in God's word, learning from it, growing from it, applying it, being obedient to it. If we step back and ponder a little bit about what's at stake, why this is so needed, why this is so necessary, it will start to guide us in making some decisions about what does that look like for me on a weekly basis, on a daily basis? How am I going to spend time in God's word? How am I going to be faithful to abide in God's word? If somebody were to ask you that question, hey, what we read today says that true disciples abide in God's word. What does that look like for you? How would you answer? How would you respond? And would your response be accurate to what you're actually doing in your life, right? What does it mean for you to be abiding in God's word and develop a plan to follow for you? Maybe it's you're gonna spend time in God's word in the mornings because that, that's, that's your preferred time. That's when you're most focused. That's when you have uh, the time that you can set aside. Maybe it's you spending time in, in God's word at night. Maybe it's like what, what's kind of necessary for me, that's spending long chunks of time in God's word throughout the week. That maybe I can't replicate uh, the same amount of time every single day but there's days where I'm able to set aside more time (coughs) than other days. I want you to think about this and ponder this in light of what we've seen today in John chapter eight, that as disciples, as true disciples, we have a responsibility to be abiding in God's word. From our family worship question standpoint, discussed within your family this week, number one, how does Jesus act like a light and help us see things more clearly? So help, help our kids to maybe even understand this correlation between Jesus and light. How does he help us see things more clearly? Number two, what are some ways for us to be in the word together as a family this week, right? As we're seeking to help our kids understand the need to be in God's word. What are some things that you can even do as a family to help build that culture within your kids that abiding in God's word is a necessary part of following him? Let's close by looking at John chapter eight altogether now. Told you that today was a little bit different and that I wanted to approach it more from a summary standpoint and seeing what Jesus has to say about the gospel and how we see the gospel in this passage. But now I do want us to see it kind of all together in the way that it flows. John chapter eight, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from uh, below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They do not understand that he has been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak Jesus as the, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. And we definitely see that to be true uh, immediately after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Those who had been warring against Jesus, they begin to see him, right? It's his brothers, right? Paul, even the Roman guard who's standing there, they begin to see the validity and the truthfulness of what he said. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Right, that's a key point that that we haven't hit on, that despite the rejection from the Pharisees, there are many who do believe in him in this teaching, right? So Jesus said to the ones who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Some commentators even believe that there's an attack there against the virgin birth. that They're trying to, to insinuate that Jesus's origins are through sexual immorality. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would have loved me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you think you're, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have led many of us out of darkness into light. We thank you for coming as that great light who came to illuminate us to our purpose for existing, that we don't live here to enjoy this world to the fullest, that you, were create, that, you, that you created us. You were creating us to enjoy you forever. God, help us to see that the things of this world are simply tools and ways for us to glorify you. God, help us to see that when we begin to live life after our sinful desires, that ultimately we are making an idol out of the things that you've created. God, I pray for those that, that may be here today that have, never, that have never turned to you in belief, that have never surrendered their own personal righteousness, that have never seen their sin for what it really is, that maybe have been clinging to a... Um, a spiritual heritage of being raised in a Christian family and and have used that to validate their stance before you. God, I pray that you would expose them to their sin, their darkness, and their need for a Savior. Father, for those of us that are believers, God, I pray that you would help us to see see your word faithfully and, and regularly as we seek to abide in you through it. God, I pray that we would Um, continue to yield to your word, that we would show our faith to be genuine by the way that we respond to you. God, I pray that we would continue to put ourselves in position to be around people who can help us in doing that, who can help push us towards you when we begin to uh, be tempted by the things of this world. God, help us not to grow discouraged when we see others around us who fall into apostasy. God, help us to recognize that that you've assured us that that will happen. But God, help it to be a warning to us to keep persevering, to keep pressing on in our own pursuit of you. God, I pray that this week we would take some time to ponder and to think about what it looks like for us to seek to abide in your word, that we would carve out time in our schedule to sit and to meditate upon you and the things that you desire for us. God, help us to realize that if we're gonna structure our calendar this week appropriately, that we have to filter it through your word. So God, help us to make time to be with you this week. And God, we're trusting that as we make time to be with you, that you will reveal truth to us and that that truth will continue to set us free from sin as we look forward to the return of Jesus where we can escape death forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.